You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear an argument against Measure RR, the three-county, 30-year sales tax that would serve as a dedicated funding source for Caltrain. We have to tell them no. You know, we are used to just giving the government and the bureaucrats money that they want. And so they are used to just weak arguments and weak uh, uh, sales on, on these sorts of things. We need to say, you have to really prove that you need this money and that it's going to benefit us. And I think in this case, they have failed. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. San Francisco voters will join Santa Clara and San Mateo County voters in deciding on a regional measure designated RR to enact a one-eighth cent sales tax for 30 years whose revenue would go to Caltrain. On our last program, you heard from Adina Levin, a transit advocate and supporter of the measure. Today, we'll bring you the argument of the measure's official opponent in San Francisco. Uh, my name is Eric Garris, and I am the director of a nonprofit that is unrelated to Proposition RR, and I have lived in San Francisco since 1975. And you oppose RR on your own behalf or as part of an organization? On my own behalf. Well, let's talk about why. So Measure RR is a sales tax. Three different counties are going to be voting on it. Um, And it would be in place for 30 years. It's an eighth of a cent sales tax. Can you talk about your reasons for opposing a sales tax? Let's start conceptually there. It has been described as a regressive tax. I mean, it is a regressive tax because it um, applies to everybody who purchases things. But can you talk about your opposition to a sales tax? Well, a sales tax is a regressive tax, and although it means that it uh, hits people across the board, it does affect lower-income people the most. The, the lower your income, the higher you, are, you pay of your income in, as a percentage in sales tax. So sales tax are extremely regressive. And this is uh, the reason I oppose it is first of all, I, I generally oppose increasing the sales tax. I know it's a very small amount, but it just keeps creeping up and creeping up, and it does hurt poor people the most. And this is a service that does not help poor people. This is a service that helps the upper class. And, and the studies have shown that the people who use uh, the Caltrain system are from the upper income. And actually, that's one of the arguments that is used by the proponents, because what they want to do is expand it so that it crosses other income uh, brackets. But there is no indication that that's going to be the case. Uh, And right now, we have a very large portion of the population in the Bay Area and nationwide are unemployed and underemployed. And this is not a time to go raising taxes on people. 
So you've raised a couple of different points in that response. I want to take them piece by piece. Uh, first okay. of all, the discussion of in the discussion of who rides Caltrain and how that could change, one of the reasons why proponents are arguing for this is because Caltrain is undergoing this long electrification uh, project. And the argument that I heard is if electrification is successful and implemented, uh, then it, Caltrain could send through more frequent trains and make stops more frequently so that the service population is shifted away from those higher income uh, commuters and makes the service available and more useful for people who commute at different hours outside of peak um, and who use it for all kinds of travel, not just commutes. Uh, so, so when you say that there's no evidence of that changing, I mean, that is the argument that's being made, and that's what the study internally at Caltrain suggests. Are you saying that you're not convinced by that argument? I'm not convinced, and I certainly am not convinced now. That study was done prior to the lockdown, prior to the, to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen now, Caltrain has lost 95% of their ridership during the pandemic. Yes. And what we're seeing as a result of the pandemic is not just a temporary change in the way that people work. We are seeing a permanent change. We are seeing companies making decisions to start getting people to work at home. And these are good decisions. These are decisions which are going to help the economy, which are going to help the environment, are going to relieve uh, gridlock. And there is really no indication that those that other 95% is going to be recovered not just in the near future but ever we are we are looking at a, a sea change in the way people work in america and perhaps in the world that we're going to see a lot less reliance on commuting and this is a solution that needs to wait what we're seeing is yesterday's solution to today's problem. And the problems today are completely different than they were a couple of years ago when this study was first uh, enacted. Let me ask you about another study then, which, you know, admittedly is from the proponents or one of the proponents of RR, um, but Seamless Bay Area, which is an organization that advocates for better transit, recently put out a study suggesting that even once the pandemic is over, restoring service to pre-pandemic levels actually won't be enough to really meet the Bay Area's need because the region was underserved by transit before the pandemic. So if service is only restored to those levels, it just it won't be sustainable. It won't meet environmental goals. It won't meet the needs of people who want, uh, you know, regional transit. Well, as I said before, there is no indication that the needs are going to increase after Mm -hmm. the pandemic. This is something that we should wait and see. And bureaucrats want to expand. That is something that they always want to do, and they always find justifications for it. Right now, people are really having to tighten their belts. But the one group that doesn't have to tighten their belts are the bureaucrats and the politicians who just want more and more money. And right now, they need to tighten their belts across the board. It's not just in transportation. Across the board, they need to start making cuts in spending because people can't afford it. We are having a major economic problem, and they need to adjust just like the average person needs to adjust. 
So talking about who this would hit the hardest and in the impact of a sales tax, an eighth of a cent does sound like a small amount. Is there any way to put this into context or have there been any studies done about how much of an impact cumulatively, you know, over 30 years or over the course of a year, this might actually have on low income families or how much people would actually end up spending on an individual or household basis on this tax? I don't have any studies to quote, but I can just tell you that the people I see across the street from where I live, there are new homeless people living in their cars. Mm -hmm. These are not people who were low income before. They are people who have lost their jobs, who have lost their homes, and are now living out of their cars, trying to find work. You have more and more people are losing their jobs. And the people who are benefiting from this, the only people who are benefiting from this are the, the uh, big corporations and the politicians who are making out on, on all of the problems that we're having. These people need to cut back, just like we're having to cut back. I'm sure most of your listeners are people who have not gotten raises, who are not getting more money. Yet the, the people who are running the government are getting more money and they need to cut back. They just need to do it. I mean, th th they need to look at the reality of what's going on and just say, okay, we have to adjust to the needs of, of the people who ride our system, who used to ride our system, and who don't ride our system, who are paying for this. They need to just tighten their belts and wait and see what happens. Everything is changing, and we can't just go on old studies that were done that are no longer relevant. I want to talk a little bit about how this got on the ballot in three counties in the first place, because it was a bit of a process and you brought up the bureaucracy and, um, you know, politicians and how they are managing this. So there, there was some political controversy in the process of getting this on the ballot because there was a discussion of potentially adding a change to the way that Caltrain is governed and managed to the measure itself. It didn't make it into the measure, but changing the way that Caltrain is governed was ultimately decided on at the Joint Powers Board, which is the entity that's actually responsible for managing Caltrain. What did you make of all this and watching it happen? I mean, would a change in, in management of Caltrain in any way make this measure more palatable or less palatable to you? It, it makes no difference. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, if you look at, San, you know, as a San Francisco resident, I see Caltrain as the least beneficial to people who live in San Francisco. It's primarily used by people on the peninsula. And so San Franciscans really don't get very much out of Caltrain. Uh, certainly the businesses do when they have their employees come in uh, from the peninsula. But now the businesses are not, are, are not having people come in and commute, which is why the number of people who ride Caltrain, I mean, think about this, 63,000, a year ago, 63,000 was the average number of people who rode Caltrain on a daily basis. Today, it is 3,500. That's how much it's dropped. And 
for them to just pretend as they do in their ballot argument, they say the pandemic's going to be over soon and then everybody, everything's going to go back to normal. And that's a ridiculous thing to say, that it's ignoring the reality of the situation and it's making a prediction that is not, I don't think it's a reasonable prediction. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how soon this is going to be over. And what happens if the pandemic goes on for years and Caltrain continues to run for 3,500 people? I mean, you get to the point where they could buy these people all take, uh, trips on Uber to work every day and save money. I mean, it's just ridiculous for them to be saying, we need to expand, expand, expand when things have changed. And this is very typical. It's the same way that wars are fought. Generals are always fighting the last war. Well, that's what's happening with Caltrain. They are putting forth a solution that is no longer relevant to the current situation. What about the considerations, not just about the numbers of people who who ride transit now, but also about climate change and the sustainability, you know, long term of how we get around? I mean, you know, you've brought up the idea of that's that's enough financially to get everybody an Uber back and forth to on, on their commute. That seems like uh, it would not advance California's climate goals. And there's also the consideration that, you know, in San Francisco, for example, one of the reasons why people cite why they don't ride transit as much as they would like to is because the service is not up to par. So there, I think there's a connection between providing better transit service and people actually taking it. Is um, that, you know, is long that, term. I, I'm unfamiliar with such a study in, of San Francisco residents, uh, but I, I would be really surprised to see if that is really one of the major reasons. That really sounds something like what a salesman would tell you. Which, that people don't ride transit because the service is bad? That people don't ride Caltrain because the service is bad. People don't Mm. ride Caltrain because it only serves a specific area. And I understand that Caltrain wants to expand and turn themselves into another version of BART. But again, they they are talking about making these changes without looking at the reality of the situation. This is what's happening across the board. Look at, look at the politicians in Washington. They are not responding to help people. They are responding to help the big corporations and the Defense Department. They are fighting for things that are important to the people that give them money. They are not responding to the needs of, of the people today. And as I said, what are you, what are you telling people? You know, uh, up to a third of the people are either unemployed or underemployed and having to cut back. And yet they're saying, you know, just give us an eighth of a cent. That's not very much money. It's just a little more money out of your pocket. But I know people who have lost their homes. I know a lot of people who have lost their jobs. And I myself have had a decrease in my income as a result of the pandemic. And I think most people, if they have not seen it themselves, they certainly have friends and family members that are in that situation. And it's just, it's, it's irresponsible and outrageous for them to just continue with the plans that they had a year ago without adjusting the way all of us have to do.
Yeah, I mean, another aspect of this is that it is not a short-term measure. I mean, this is not an emergency measure. It's not something that is supposed to that was that was proposed because of the difficulties that Caltrain is going through. It was thought of prior to the pandemic, and it was related originally to electrification and implementing electrification. That's right. But and go ahead. Yes, exactly. But if you look at the ballot argument, it is sold as an emergency measure. They're saying this is an emergency because we've lost 95% of our ridership. And yet, it's a 30-year measure. They should not be making these plans now. I mean, they should not be implementing these plans now. They've made these plans. They are no longer relevant. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board after we see what happens. But in the meantime, tighten their belts. Start looking at ways to get out of contracts that are not useful at this point. They need to deal with serving most people, including people who don't ride it, by not taking their money at this crucial time. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to ask about next uh, or, or ask you to expand on is the timeline of the measure. It it is not an emergency measure and it is going to last for 30 whole years. So in terms of whether something is going to change immediately after the pandemic, you know, has been addressed, if that happens. Um, We can only hope. Yeah. uh, Regardless of what is going to happen in the immediate future, if this passes, it's going to be in place for three decades. That's right. And they don't know what, they don't know if this is going to work. They may think they knew a year or two ago when they when they set out these plans, but they have no way of knowing. Everything is up in the air now. And the only thing that the government should be doing is helping people in this emergency and not making these grandiose plans for major changes in the uh, transportation system when nobody's riding the transportation system right now. And, and, and I think most people know that for the Caltrain people, while this was a minor emergency before, for a year ago, it's turned into a major emergency for them because they've lost 95% of their fares. And this really is a problem for them. And so they are using, as, as some, some horrible politicians have said on the federal level, they are using the... the crisis as an opportunity. And I think that goes for Caltrain as well. We'll get back to this conversation with Eric Garris in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. 
Let's hear more from Eric Garris about why he opposes Measure RR, a sales tax that would help fund Caltrain. Well, so I think I can maybe guess your answer to this, but I don't want to assume. There has been an argument made that even though this was not intended originally as an emergency measure, if it doesn't pass, Caltrain may shut down. Um, How do you feel about that? Well, number one, I, I really doubt it. That's what politicians and bureaucrats always say. If you don't give us more money, we're going to have to cut back. We're going to have to shut down. But right now, who knows? That might be the best thing for the moment. I mean, if something is not helping people and is is not cost effective, there's no reason that they should continue just because they say, oh, it's going to be a crisis to get it back up and running. I mean, the big reason that it would be a crisis to get it back up and running is because they've made so many of these irresponsible commitments to contractors that they have to go ahead and pay. They need to try and figure out ways to get out of some of these contracts. You know, the act of God. I mean, there are all kinds of, of arguments for not continuing this. I'd like to read a little bit from the no on RR opponent argument that you submitted. You write, existing transportation sales taxes fund the three county transit agencies, Muni, VTA, and Samtrans, which in turn subsidize Caltrain with $30 million a year in taxpayer funds. Can you explain a little bit in layman's terms how exactly that works? <laughs> because I think this is, you know, a bit confusing. There's we're paying into three different agencies and then they pass on the money to another agency, which is managed by the Joint Powers Authority. And it, it, it all gets a little bit muddled. It um, is very it's, muddled. It's very confusing. I agree that that's often the way that government runs. I have to be honest with you now when I've, I am not a transportation expert and mm-hmm. I have not. Uh, I was not even aware of RR until recently. And when I heard about it, I wanted to, and heard that no one was submitting a ballot argument against it, I decided to to submit one. And the, the original argument was written by the, the, the Peninsula Coalition, the Santa Clara Valley uh, Coalition, and I submitted that. I wrote the, the rebuttal, and I have done a lot more research since then about the situation. So it's hard for me to actually defend that particular original argument because I didn't write it. Okay. Um, so I don't, so, to be honest with you, I don't know. Okay. The answer to your question. Hmm. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I have to. I don't want to. I don't want to fake it. I don't want to lie. Yeah. I, you know, I, I. This is this is something that I did as a private citizen because I was outraged by the fact. That the that they would try to raise the sales tax in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, and so I, I I think it's I think that the argument in favor is kind of weak. I think the argument against is much stronger. I mean, the rebuttal mm-hmm. to the the rebuttal to the argument in favor. Okay. Um, it, do you have any thoughts on the system generally, where these transportation sales taxes are sort of moved around or like collected at one level and then spread around at a at a later level, um, and and how adding another one would affect that? I personally think that that transit systems should do their best to operate as businesses. I think that they should get as little tax money as possible. And I realize that that's not you can't do it with no ta- with no taxes, but I think that 
they should look at trying to be as cost effective as possible, which means taking as little as they can. And when this money is moved around, as it is between federal and state and local governments, whenever that happens, it's like everybody takes their cut and everybody takes a little bit. And it's, it's one of the worst ways that government has to finance things. We have to tell them no. You know, we are used to just giving the government and the bureaucrats money that they want. And so they are used to just weak arguments and weak uh, uh, sales on, on these sorts of things. We need to say, you have to really prove that you need this money and that it's going to benefit us. And I think in this case, they have failed. And the failure comes from them not adjusting. They said they already they already worked. And as you pointed out, they spent a lot of time working to get this on the ballot. It's very difficult. It's not like a single county measure. It takes a lot of coordination and a lot of, of bureaucratic work to get something like this on the ballot. And I appreciate that they've done this. But we also need to appreciate what is going on. The pandemic was unpredictable. We are in unpredictable times. And what the time for in across the board with government, they need to start cutting back in every area that does not directly help the people in the immediate crisis that they're in, which is huge, huge unemployment, which is a housing crisis that is, is becoming something like we've never seen. And we need to force them to cut back. And one of the ways to do that is to vote no on Proposition RR. Maybe I could ask you to expand a little bit more on what you were saying about operating like a business. I mean, it is public transit um, and it, you know, I think by governments is treated as a public good and therefore at least partially publicly funded. The other thing is that Caltrain, among our regional uh, transit organizations, if I recall correctly, has a pretty good fare box recovery rate. A lot of its funding actually comes directly from people who are paying for tickets. Um, but, you know, those people just aren't there right now. Right. Mm, so is this time for government to step in? It's not serving or? anyone. It's only mm-hmm. serving a tiny group of people at, uh, at the fare box. And it's, and it's also serving people who work for Caltrain and people who are contractors with Caltrain. And so that's what they really, I, I, I'm sure if you go to work at Caltrain, that is what people are talking about. They are not talking about, oh, what about the poor people that are going to need this when the pandemic's over? They are talking about how are we going to pay our bills tomorrow, just like the average American. The difference is that they have a way of getting money that we don't. And that is to take it from us. And right now, they need to get their hands out of our pockets. Great. Well, Eric, I am running out of questions. Is there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't give you a chance to talk about? Uh, I think I think I've covered what I can. As I said, I'm not a transportation expert, and I wish that there were some people who cared more about this that were working on opposing it. But right in San Francisco, it's difficult to find people who are going to oppose tax measures. And it's really unfortunate. And it's especially unfortunate right now, 
because we have them increasing taxes on a state level, we have them increasing taxes on a federal level, and we have them increasing taxes at all the different local levels. And they need to give some relief to the taxpayers. Eric, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you very much. That was Eric Garris. Find our conversation with a supporter of Measure RR in our podcast feed or at sfpublicpress.org. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization, sfpublicpress.org. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. The publisher of the Public Press is Lila LaHood. Executive Director, Michael Stoll. Director of Membership and Community, Daphne Magnawa. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.